Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode of 26 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So there are some universal rules to transitions, and I hope you've gained some resources and knowledge about some of those transition topics here, but we would be amiss if we didn't talk about how your specialty can impact your transition. So over the next few months here and there, we're going to be doing some deep dives into what you need to know about your specialty. And in this episode, we're starting with the all so popular orthodontic transition. So general rules, we're going to call them housekeeping. No one rule is a formula for a transition. And I hope that by now you know that, but every transition is unique and there are specific factors of your transition that we have to take into account. And ultimately, you're the one taking the risk. So we hope these are knowledgeable. We hope they're a resource for you. But ultimately, you need to know, do you like it and do you love it? And if you like it and you love it and it fits what you want, then hopefully we can help you buy it. So before we get going, we are knee deep in ortho. We We just got back from St. Louis. Yes, yes. So I always, in the GORP meeting, I don't even know what the GORP stands for, but it's a group of freaking partying residents. That's what it's about. <laughs> there is not a bigger party in dentistry than GORP. And to see a bunch of 25 and 26-year-olds at Saturday and Sunday morning, they're having a good time there, aren't yes, they? Yes, they are. And we hand out the coveted NDP water <laughs> oh, bottle. Oh, yeah, baby. They still flock. They still flock to the NDP bottle. Like, Nobody you have can... to have dozens of them by now. They're Heard all bottles. the stories of the boyfriend or girlfriend still in the bottle. Mine's a little beat up. Can I have a new one, please? But it's <laughs> so cute to see a $600,000 indebted person get excited about a $20 water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I might say I might have taken one home myself yeah. as a little souvenir and have one. So it was a good kind of segue into today's recording. So yes. just wanted to talk about that. So this is probably the most unique out of all the transitions just in what we're looking at from a diligence perspective. And it definitely requires a few more pieces of information, even for our initial calls that we do with potential clients. So when you think about an orthodontic transition, what is one of those first things that come to your mind? Like if I could only know like two or three things, like what do I want to know if I'm considering an opportunity? So the first is every single dentist, every single specialist, they all think they're special. Yeah, they all, well, yes, they're specialists. Well, yes, I have a unique situation or what do you know about orthodontics or what do you know about this? I will tell you that there is no question when you value an orthodontic practice, it is the most unique and it's the most, not necessarily complicated, you just need to gather much more information to make a really good assessment if it's a good deal or bad deal. And I think that's true of lending too. It has unique factors that the other specialties don't have, not that it's more important or special than any of the others. It just has different components that the other practices don't have. And so even lenders sometimes have a hard time understanding the process there. So sorry. That's why we do like some of our major lenders that so they don't get caught up in, well, what's this, what's that? So I like my big top three or four lenders that mm-hmm. deal in dentistry so that they can, once they see an ortho, we don't get stuck up in a wrist department or lending because their dad likes this bank or whatever it is. Yeah. So, But when I first think of orthodontics, my first number one thing is I want to see what my production is. Mm-hmm. I want to see what my collections are. I want to be able to see what my starts, my phase one and twos are. I want to see my observation cases. I want to see my D-bands. I want to see what technology is being utilized in the practice. But if I go back just to my top three, and what's so super unique about this business is that 
and it was cute because I was walking out of a lecture at Gorp and I was sitting next to a guy who's like, yeah, I know who you are. So he was talking about production and collections. I was like, so you understand what he just said, right? And he kind of shook his head, but he's like, no, tell me. <laughs> so production, let's make it very, very yeah. simple. Back to the basics. So the case is there. It's a, a full treatment case and it's $6,000 and the patient accepts that day. They accept the 6000 and maybe we're even putting brackets and wires on. And let's say the down payment for simplicity was $1,000. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we should be able to see in our financial statements is you're going to see collections of $1,000 and show up in the profit and loss statement. Yep. But that was a $6,000 day. And that's yep. just going to show up on production. So you're not typically going to have financial statements that are going to find that production nope. number. So we need to understand that the production was six, the collection was one. And then we've got $5,000 left in our contracts receivable. Did you say accounts receivable? That would be no, Chrissy. That's called contracts receivable. Contracts receivable is basically the amount of money that is owed from the patient back to the doctor. And typically, the doctor is smart enough. They're going to divide those payments into the treatment plan visits. Okay. So typically you'll take an 18-month treatment plan and maybe it's $5,000. They'll take 18 months into this $5,000 and boom, that is your plan, okay? Accounts receivable, which is most common in general dentistry, is going to be is I got a crown. It was $1,000. Maybe that was my production. Insurance write-off was maybe 100 bucks, And so now maybe the collections was actually nine. The patient paid 500 a day, and then you're billing them 400. That 400 is going to be the accounts receivable. Accounts receivable is the amount of money owed when the patient is completely full of treatment and out of the office. That's going to be a very, very low number in orthodontics. Very low, maybe zero. Yeah, I like to explain it. You have accounts receivable is for work you have already done and the patient owes you today. And contracts is for work you will do in the future and they owe you in the future. You have not yet done the work, therefore they do not owe you. So in ortho, if you think about this, you have a monthly billing, right? You bill them on the first of the month, they get a bill. At that first of the month, whenever you bill them, your contracts receivable becomes accounts receivable because now they owe that money. It is due. You're doing the work that month. So I would say this is probably a very large concept that even well-established doctors do not understand today going through a legal document for a sale. And the question was that the document said it was excluding accounts receivable. And he was like, well, I have like 800,000 in my accounts receivable. And I said, no, you do not. You have 800,000 in contracts receivable. Your accounts receivable is very minimal. So big concept to understand a contracts receivable is always included or should always be included. I can't imagine where it wouldn't be in a sale accounts receivable is that thing we talk about separately. So huge, huge concept. Yep, absolutely. So, okay, production, collection, and contract receivable. I think what's interesting and critical about an ortho transition is how these three things play together and how it's really important to view them and what they're doing to understand kind of what's happening in a practice. So what would be happening in a practice if we have decreasing production, but we have increasing collections? If those are the only two numbers that we really know, what would your guess be about that practice? 
So we probably in that situation are going to have likely having some decreasing our contract receivable numbers. So that would make sense in that scenario. Yeah. And that is because in a healthy ortho practice, what we'd want to see is we want to see production going up. And we want to see collections either steady or going up, right, depending on kind of that payment plan. But what it means is if our production is going down and our collections are going up, what that can mean is we're just collecting on old contracts receivable, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. what oftentimes we'll get is we will get income statements or tax returns for an ortho practice, right? And it just that those are the collections of the practice. And it looks great because collections are going up and up and up every year. But in my world, if I'm looking at that, I'm missing a big piece, right? Because if production is not going up and production is going down, that is still not a growing orthodontic practice. The production has to be going up because what you just explained is that case that's being accepted. $1,000 is what I'm getting today. So production has to be going up if that is a growing orthodontic practice. And this is what I'll say too, is let's just take a 2018 tax return. It it did 2 million and 17 did 2 million. And let's say the valuation is 2 million. You're like, hey, this is a really high valuation because it's at 100% of collections. And so my first question is, what's the production, you know, so far for 19? Now, all of a sudden, production is pacing 2.5. I'm much more excited about it. Oh, yeah. I'm much more, hey, let's, you know, it is a little high, but when you look at it from a production standpoint, collections will, you know, soon be trailing in the next 18 months. This is a really good deal, so let's not mess this up. Versus that 2 million, 2 million, all of a sudden, my production is pacing 1.6, and the guy or gal is just kind of melded in a little bit. And you may not see that on the tax return. You may not see that on the profit and loss statement. Yeah, because there are changes that a practice can make to grow that are not going to be... It's different, right? You change up something and your case acceptance goes up. You put out some new advertising. You start some new cases. I mean, you're only seeing the down payment in that first year. And so your collections are not going to go crazy high, where in other specialties, you do a big case, you finish it out in a month, you book the production, you book the collection, it all kind of melts together there, and and you see it in both pieces there. So seeing those things, and we'll talk about contract receivable more in a little bit, but, you know, that contract receivable number can tell you a lot. And if you think about what that number is, you're buying that future profitability, right? I mean, it's not all profit. There's costs that go into that number, but that is a future kind of pipeline of business that you're committing to. And so other kind of rules of thumb that you'll see when you talk about valuations of ortho practices, some will use multiples of contracts or it should be 70% or whatever. There's a ton of numbers out there and everyone has their own, but that number is just as critical as production and collections in an ortho. And you just can't look at this one rule of the contract rule or the percent of the collection rule or the two times earnings. You just simply can't. You have to look at this entire picture to be able to formulate a plan. I've seen so many times where we had a lot of prepaids in practices, but we still paid premium for that practice because it's a history of people paying $6,000 up front. Well, yep. there's a history there, so I like that. 15 years, a guy has been taking $6,000 cases and people are writing checks or swiping credit cards for six grand. i am in. Yeah. You know, it's an affluent area. I like it. 
absolutely. It's a business practice that's not ideal for transition, but ideal for ownership. And you kind of have to look at those things. One thing also that I think is important to look at, this is kind of back to our Nancy Drew episode, you can kind of tell the size of a practice by looking at some other things, you know, the case stats. So someone's hesitant, they don't want to give you their P&L or production reports, but you can ask them general questions like, well, how many cases have you started? Mm -hmm. Or how many do you start a month? Or what are your estimates? Well, then you can kind of back into kind of what their production is because, you know, they start X number of cases, average fee, five, six thousand dollars, seven thousand, whatever is normal in your area. And you can say, okay, well, roughly that's an X production type practice. Yes. So that's really important. What are some other things that if you're just looking at some case stats, what are numbers you like to look at in there? And what do we mean when we say case stats other than just starts, right? There's more to it than that. You certainly want to look at the just the observation cases. You want to see what a new patient exam is. So that basically that new patient exam that's coming in and do they have their six-year-old molars, they got their 12-year-old molars, and can you present a treatment plan mm-hmm. to them at that point? And then at that point, once it's presented, then there is typically a case acceptance, and say, mm-hmm. meaning your treatment coordinator will draw up a plan and say this is going to be a $6,000 case. And then a general rule, uh, the average cane waters case acceptance is roughly 71% according to the 2018 orthodontic practice comparison report on their website. And so, but I've seen practices, you know, it's average. So you got people mm-hmm. that hire, it's going to people lower. Anything lower than 70, it should be looked at. And there's a lot of cool software that's out there for very inexpensive that, you know, giving them some type of slider tool or something to let the patient kind of create mm-hmm. their own acceptance. Mm-hmm. Let them determine if they want an 800 or $1,000 down payment. Typically, you'll see in competitive areas now that a lot of lower down payments will get that higher acceptance. That amount will take those payments out higher and who knows, maybe stretch out the, the length of time. You may have technology in place where it's only a 12 or 18 month treatment plan, but then the payment doesn't work for the customer at call it 400 bucks a month. So then you got to work with them on that and maybe stretch it out. So there's a lot of dynamics mm-hmm. <laughs> that are going on here between you and your office manager slash treatment coordinator to make this perfect acceptance really high and this perfect payment as well as the treatment time and the number of visits in your office all work out. So there's just a lot, a lot of moving parts. And I think if that number is low, it doesn't necessarily, again, I think there are very few things that are red flags. There are a lot of yellow flags and we have to figure out that what it is. Maybe it's the down payment, what you're not offering flexible enough payment plans. Maybe whoever is presenting your cases has not ideal communication skills. There's something is off with that. And what can we do to improve the case acceptance? Because if the patients are coming in the door, We have to figure out how to get them converted. And if the patients are coming in, that's a good sign, right? When the patients aren't coming in, we don't have anything to convert. Now we're back to kind of advertising marketing and how much is that going to cost per patient? Now, this is extreme, but it's not that extreme to see maybe a doctor having some $1,500 down payment, but then all of a sudden switch to a $199 down payment because they're competitors or some corporate offices across the street. Well, now all of a sudden that's a $1,300 decrease from a collection standpoint per start. So again, on those tax returns, you may see the two million all of a sudden see a drop at 1.7. There is no need to be alarmed if the production of the practice is consistent or even going up. Yeah, It's just, we got a higher contract receivable number at play and, and I'm okay with that. I mean, we've already got the patient in the door. I'm gonna buy your practice 
And I love a high contracts number because yeah. I know what I'm getting that I'm going to get paid. It's easy for forecast for my business. Yeah. And I think it's even important. Sometimes we'll say, okay, well, what are your starts? And we get a lump number, right? Like some lump sum. I started, you know, 20 cases a month, 30 cases a month, whatever the number is. But sometimes when we look at that and then we look at production collections, I can remember one transition in particular where we got the start and the starts looked like they were growing, but production was not growing at the clip. It looked like it should based on the starts. And so we said, hey, do you track this in any more detail? Can we get more detail than just the starts? Can we get phase one and phase two and full and Invisalign? Can we get more detail? And so they sent us over additional numbers. And what it turns out it was is they had transitioned to starting more phase one and their phase one was less costly than their full. And so while they had more starts, it didn't result in the production and collection boost it would have had they started just more full starts. And that was a strategy for them. They had seen competitors kind of taking over those. They got them in early and, you know, and that was a good sign, but it helps reconcile when numbers don't fit as we expect them to. So the more detail, the better. And sometimes even then the numbers don't mesh and we have to figure out, well, what's going on, right? There's a correlation between all of those pieces. Yeah. Then there's lots of different schools of thought too, as far as what a start is, is if they do a phase one, does it count as another start when you move them over to phase two? So you've got to ask that level of of detail. That's what I love about me being at the 30,000 foot level and you got to deal with the details of all that crap. (laughs) I will tell you, I feel like the orthodontic reports that we get from the systems are always so different and so messy for that very purpose. And some people, they're like, oh, the patient's in the door. I don't need to like track that they've started something else or uh, phase one into phase two. That's a new start. But if they don't, it is all over the board. It's special. So you definitely have to ask a lot of questions. Two other things we look at, we look at observations, we look at D-bands, clearly observations, patients that are in waiting and aren't ready but are being observed. That's a great pipeline to see that patients are coming in. I'm on someone's pipeline for Lila who doesn't have, I don't know, it seems like she has a lot more teeth to lose, but I was told to go to the orthodontist, so I went to the orthodontist. So, I mean, that type of pipeline where we are probably two or three years out from any kind of true braces, but I know who my orthodontist is and that's where we'll go. And so that's a good pipeline to see that they have those. Yeah. You'll see some struggling startup doctors where they go to this beautiful new area and all these new homes. So you typically have these younger families and just like, well, you're waiting for that six-year-old molar to kick in, but you're still showing up at four and a half, five, five and a half, six. And so we've got this huge amount that's coming. It's like a Mm -hmm. stock you see, it's about ready to happen. And it's exciting, but unfortunately, in an ortho practice, you still need staff. Answering the phones, you still need to see these families. And so it's cool. You can see that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So either we're going to buy something like that or just for those that already have a, a practice that's up and going, we know it's going to happen and convert. And so there is certain value to having observation cases that are going up or even consistent. But I don't want to see my observation quote going down. I don't see my production going down. Mm-hmm. I don't see my debounce going up. These are all these things that are saying alarm, alarm, alarm. Especially in combination with other factors. Right. Yeah. So we've talked about contracts receivable. So we know what it is, hopefully. Yes. Go back and press play again if you need another refresher. This is an important concept when we've said, I think we said the average contract receivable based on the ortho practice compare report from Kane Waters is 63% of production. So yes. that means that 63% of whatever you are producing in a given year is what your contract receivable balance should be. What does it mean if it's too low or too high, which I don't really think too high is a thing, but what if it's too low? What does that tell you about a practice? It's just telling me that they have a high down payment. 
So this is probably not a $199 down payment. This is probably a $2,000 or just somebody that's, again, a super affluent area or just somebody that's paying in full. I would ask the question about the state that they're in, they're practicing. Is this a state that is still accepting Medicaid, that not these really complicated cases, but in the cases that are a little simpler that still they come in and the state's going to pay maybe four grand for the case and they accept it. That's what they do. And so those are all prepaid. And so that would tell me that the contract receivable would be low. Collections would look good. My contracts would be very low. Yeah. And I think that these present a challenge in transition, especially in a hundred percent sale transitions, because as a buyer, I am going into a practice that has a lower contracts receivable number, which means typically a higher balance of fully prepaid patients. And so I'm going to buy patients that I'm going to do work on for a period of time, some 18, maybe, 24 yeah, months, sure. with no payment, right? And so there are a few ways to handle this, but I always want to caveat this with the price of the practice and the cash flows of the practice matter how we deal with prepaids. We have been in the position where we have had a practice with a very high number of fully paid patients and a lower contract number. I think it was in the 20s or 30s percent of production, but they had a 30% overhead and it was a solid practice. And so we said, hey, not ideal, but you are buying a very amazing cash flow practice. The price is good and therefore we're going to be okay with these prepaids. Let's just make sure it's super clear. So Lila is a six-year-old. She gets this phase one treatment in, let's say it's 3000 bucks. I'm going to sell the practice to you, Christy. Mm -hmm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make an arrangement with Lila's parents and say, hey, instead of $3,000, we are going to make this deal at $25. let us prepay you today. Let's close today, Mm -hmm. and I will put braces on your daughter. Then the very next day, I sell to you, Mm -hmm. and then what? You've got to complete that treatment for free. Phase one treatment that I am completing for free because the money is in the seller's pocket. So that could create a problem if it's 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 of those. Yeah. And so generally, I think part of the value in an orthodontic practice is this pipeline of future work that you're going to get paid for. They have braces on. They're committed to the practice for 18, 24, however many more months. I think that's part of where there's value. There's additional value. That's why we see some of these higher multiples. So if we have a lot of prepaid patients and we have a contract receivable number that's low, there's a couple ways to handle that as long as the profitability is also fantastic. So one of the ways we can do it is we ignore it because the price is right and the cash flows are right. Another way we can handle it is there's some kind of reconciliation at the close where we say, okay, here's the number of prepaid patients. Here's the balance of those. Usually there's a formula of, okay, use Lila as an example. Lila's here. She's paid you $2,500. She has six of six months left, and I'm going to pay you $2,500 buyer at the close because you are going to do all of the treatment. Right. What if she has only three months left? Well, now I'm going to pay you half of that. So we're going to do some kind of formula that tries to true up or reconcile the amount of money that the seller has that the buyer is going to do the work for. There are articles written about this. There's a ton of ways to handle this. 
we have our own kind of method that we like to use that we think is fair. We think that the seller probably earns a good amount of the fee at bonding or at, you know, that initial appointment. And then we think doing some kind of fair proration makes sense for the buyer. But again, we have to know what it looks like. We need to know what profitability is. We need to know what that contract, what's the transition plan. All of those things matter in how you deal with it. It's just a question and making sure you deal with it on the front end and you understand what it is on the front end so you're not surprised on the back end when this happens. But make no mistake about it. If we come across a practice that does $2 million and that's one million. It's in this saturated market. You want to be there. And they have a history of these contracts being low. They have a history of the patients paying upfront. And there is consistency across the board. And we still have this high valuation at maybe 90% of collections. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to buy it. Yeah. But what about all these prepays that you talked about? I'm like, there's a history there. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. I mean, there are creative solutions. If you think it's super risky, if there's some factor in your transition where you're worried they're not going to keep doing that to you, which they will likely. I mean, it's very uncommon for them not to, but there are ways to figure that out. Definitely. Yeah. So I think it's important to know about. It's important to think about if you're a seller. Oftentimes you probably don't know what this number is. You've probably know generally, yeah, people prepay. I offer a discount. But in our experience, the sellers we work with don't run this report. They don't know how substantial that number is because they're running their business. They get the same collections. They get the same profit year after year after year. So it becomes less of a thing they're thinking about. So if you're a seller or thinking about transitioning or you're a buyer, just know this exists. Know you need to understand what the number is. And then we can clearly figure out a plan once you get to transition. So we really haven't focused on cash flow, which is very abnormal for us. I want to caveat that it still matters a lot in an orthodontic transition. And so let's talk about some of the big pieces. So direct costs, lab supplies, salaries, advertising, I think is a big cost in ortho practice. So let's talk about some of those, what's normal, and kind of what are your thoughts on those? Well, my first thought when you're thinking about an orthodontic practice, some of the established doctors go back to the $2 million practice that maybe he's netting eight or 900000 dollars a million. You're typically talking some 50-year-old that's been doing it for a while. Things are good. And when you make that kind of money, you want time. And when then to try to free up time, you typically invest in, in technology. I was actually invited to speak at the AAO and spoke on this technology thing, kind of the return on investment with technology. And did a really cool kind of deep dive on this subject and even wrote an article on it. And in the end, technology will free up time, but in the end, you pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, so. If that's a Invisalign or some type of clear aligner investment that you're doing, what you're doing is you're paying for something to free up your chair time. Now, typically, if you're freeing up more chair time, hopefully that theoretically should get you lower staff costs, but it always doesn't go. Unless you have a significantly growing practice and you add the technology and you don't add staff, then hopefully that's kind of like your best case scenario. But in general... What we typically see is over time that you know you will have maybe some of these higher labs with the utilization of one of these technologies, and I don't need to fill in the blank, but whatever they are, it's technology to basically make your treatment time or your chair time that's less. We'll typically see that could be in your bracket systems. Your bracket systems could be, let's say, eight, $10 brackets, or they could be a simple twin 
that's a buck 40. And when you are a young doctor buying a practice and a young orthodontist, there's a history of twin brackets working just fine. And it's very, very inefficient or very efficient from a cost standpoint. Now, it may create that more chair time, but these are your choices. Mm -hmm. So when we look at these practices, and believe me, if it's us or a private equity group, I'm telling you, this is a $2 million practice that nets a million, a $2 million practice that nets 800, 700, 900, 1.3, whatever it is, the more cash that's on the table, the higher the value and the more likelihood that we're going to push you to purchase it, mm-hmm. more likelihood that the bank is going to you know, accept the terms on this, maybe you know a price that is really high. But in the ideal situation we're looking at is we're trying to get these overheads down to somewhere in the low 50s, and that's our goal. The goal would be is getting your team, your staff costs down to somewhere around 18% for orthodontics. That's the average you know, for Hurricane Waters. You typically see more of established practice with the marketing is kind of tail off a little bit. We're in the 3 to 4% range, but you'll see newer startup doctor with advertising and marketing budgets of 10, 12, and 15% because they just don't have a collection high enough. They're competitive and they're trying to grow. But once you get these hundreds of patients that are flowing through your practice, a thousand plus practice, a thousand plus patients flowing through your practice, that internal referral will kick in and you'll be able to be more efficient and be able to scale back on some of those marketing dollars. Yeah, and I think it's important to look at what are they tracking. We're diligencing a practice and they had really high advertising costs. And so then we asked for kind of a breakdown of their referrals and really only like 20% of their patients were coming from external kind of marketing, right. but they were spending a ton, right? right? So that shows a buyer that, yeah, they can probably cut down on what is being spent, right? And they may want to spend more to get their name out the first couple of years and kind of build their own relationships, but it just shows there's money there that you can cut back and really tracking where the advertising dollars are going and how many people are coming in on each of those continues to be really important because it does continue to be more expensive to attract patients in ortho practices because of the saturation. So I think it's an important thing to keep a finger on. Okay, so we talked about value and cash flow automatic leads to value. And I think everyone probably is aware of this, but clearly ortho is the seller's market, right? Definitely. The value of a practice is higher or the price of the practice. And I'm going to make a distinction there because the value of a practice, when I say value, I'm coming from a very technical standpoint of what is the formal valuation if you follow all the standards. The ortho is going to be the outlier where a market might dictate a higher price than a formal valuation could because of that future value, because of the production, because of the saturation, because of the lack of practices that are on the market. And I know you have some theories and thoughts about why there are less of them, but the demand is there. And so even though I know I might do a valuation and the valuation might come in at 80, that practice could equally price in a market and sell at 90 or 95, right? What a practice is truly worth is what two people are willing to pay for it, right? The exchange of that. So keep that in mind as you're looking at practices, hearing these rules of thumb like we talked about earlier. But tell me why the market is the way it is currently. Well, we, of course, just got back from GORP, 700-plus orthodontists that were there, uh, orthodontic residents. So we just we have more residents today. Mm-hmm. We've got these huge programs with Vegas having 30-plus. We've got Colorado's a massive program. I've got two in Nevada. I've got Manu in Atlanta with these huge programs mm-hmm. that we just didn't have before. So I've got more residents. 
we've got this technology shift that's happened. And so now all of a sudden, not just orthodontists are able to do more. So that before they were doing a million, now they're doing two. Our average orthodontist does almost two and a half. So that technology has helped us grow more. That technology has actually gone into our general dentistry as well. And there's also this technology that has allowed us to prolong our career. If anything, for me as the outside business person looking into dentistry, to me, it looks like the easiest gig as far as a just a physical demand on the body. I mean, these other specialties in general dentistry are just in these weird, awkward positions for a long period of time. And I think it just takes a longer toll. And then you've got the whole corporate thing with mm-hmm. them attacking this industry. And they've really put the push on the ortho, really put the push on the general dentistry side. So I think it's just a combination of all of those mm-hmm. things that have caused this to be really a seller's market. Yeah. So keep that in mind as you're looking at numbers and it's going to sometimes fall outside of the norm, but it's not always going to. So again, keep all those factors in mind. Another thing I think we would be amiss if we didn't mention another thing you have heard outside of cash flow, cash flow is asset sale, asset sale, asset sale, right? We've told you do not do a stock sale. I would say that in the orthodontic market, it is more likely that the deal you would be presented would be a stock sale than probably any other specialty transition, right? It is not uncommon for the transition that we are presented if we're working for a buyer to be one incremental, right? You're going to work for me for a couple years, then you're going to get to buy in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50, whatever the percentages are over a course of time. That is not uncommon. Again, based on what Charles just mentioned, people are working longer, they make more money as owners, so they're not as willing to sell the whole thing and just turn around and work back. And then also that's just what is out there. So I think some sellers don't even have the education to know that there are multiple types. They go to certain brokers, certain brokers present certain types of sales. That's what's presented to a buyer. If you are presented with a stock sale versus an asset sale, there are two potential solutions. One, either the seller does not know that there's a difference and you can simply go to them and say, hey, this is a huge tax disadvantage for me, the hundreds of thousands of deductions. There is a way to make it fair for both of us. And if you have the right person who's doing it, we can do that. The second option is you go to them and you say, hey, I'd love to make this an asset sale. And they say, no way. This is my deal. Take it or leave it. There are still ways to make that deal better, right? It's not ever going to be as good as an asset sale, but there are ways to tweak that and it still can make sense for you. And it probably still does make sense for you because it gets you to ownership and it gets you to the 100%. I own a $1.2 million ortho practice in five years in a saturated market. Okay, you know, I'm all in if there's no other option for you and the cash flows make sense. So I just want to keep in mind that usually we tell you if it's a stock sale, you know, not worth it. But I think this is the one time where we see them, we accept them, we work with them, we know that they exist, and we can help tweak the deal to make it work for you. So let me, let me make it really simple. You're going to purchase a $1 million practice. When you purchase the $1 million practice and it's a stock sale, you are getting zero tax deductions in that transaction. When you purchase the $1 million in the asset sale, you are deducting the $1 million. So there are times, like Christy said, that we may still do the deal if it's a stock sale, but man, we are going to negotiate and we have done it to get out of that. I've had it where we overpaid. Instead of the practice being for sale at $1 million, we paid $1.1 and we moved it from a stock sale to asset sale because I want a $1.1 million deduction. I'm willing to pay more for it than to pay $1 million and get zero deductions because yeah. I've got to think long term. 
this process. So just understand if you are presented a great practice and it's a great opportunity, part of this, your due diligence and our due diligence is to even look at the type of transaction from a stock standpoint or asset standpoint that's going to be. Yeah. So the last point we're going to cover today is the transition period. And so I think in my experience talking with buyers, they look to transition, and this is across the field of specialties, but it's applicable in ortho, is how long is a seller going to stay? You know, I really want them to be able to stay on. I want them to transition my patients. I feel like they need to be around for X number of days. How much are we going to pay them to work back? And there are pieces of this that matter and pieces of this that don't. And I think really kind of having a global picture of that matters. In the perfect scenario, we want them to stay around as long as possible and help transition each and every patient and shake each hand and take you out to dinner with every single referral. But we don't live in a perfect world. Sellers aren't willing to do that. Cash flow doesn't allow you to do that. And we have seen successful transitions with zero work back. And we have seen successful transitions with year-long work backs. It is really dependent on the person and really dependent on the practice. You know, like we always say, in the end, patients come back to you. That's just our experience. So usually for ortho, we're going to talk about a per diem, what's normal. I have 750 to 1500, I would say, is probably where I normally see those fall. Definitely seen something in the $2,000, $2,500 range, which was crazy high and totally out of norm, but it made sense for right. the practice. So don't fret on the number, do the math and kind of look globally and say like, does this matter? And how much money really is this before you say no? So three, three examples, two and a half million dollar practice nets a million two, and it's going to be this long staggered associate thing. And it's going to be over like a five to six or seven year period. You're going to make like, let's say $150,000 to start off. And then you become the owner a 10%, 10%, 10%. If it's a deal like this, it's not like my first choice, but in the end, if it's like a five to seven year period, and I can see that we're going to eventually replace him or her, and it does two and a half and it nets 1.2, it just simply means in the next five to seven years, you're going to be the owner, you're going to be making $1.2 million. So staggered sell on that one. I'm not as excited out of the gate, but in the end, if I can see that it's going to work for us, then I'm going to be excited about it. Let me give you an example of per diem working and a per diem not working. Second example is that it's a great practice, a million five, and it's got an amazing overhead of around 45%. This means this practice, it nets $800,000. The seller says, hey, I want to stay around. I want a per diem of 2000 a day. Okay. And how many days a week do you want to work? You want to work one day? Okay. That's about a hundred grand. You want to work two days? Okay. Now that's 200 grand. I still make $600,000 before my debt service out of the gate. This is no brain. I don't care about the thousand or 1500 or 18 or even the $2,000 a day per diem because you're still going to make 600 grand. Now this example just recently, million dollar practice about a 55% overhead means the doctor's going to net 450. So my buyer's going to make 450. My buyer's a little bit more cautious, a little bit more, I really want them to be hanging around. I don't know if this is going to work out. It's just a little timid. And so I really want the senior doctor to work around. He wants them to work like three days a week. You start running the math and all of a sudden the buyer's going to make 450, but now I got to pay debt on the $900,000 we just bought for the business. So after debt, I go from 450 all the way down to 320. 
Now, after the 320, the buyer wants to, or the seller wants to get paid, I don't know, a thousand bucks a day and now get paid $150,000 for that first year. Now, all of a sudden, my buyer only makes like 150, 160 after the debt and after paying the senior doctor. The problem now is the bank doesn't like the deal, okay? And I don't like the deal because I don't think we need that senior doctor around. So this work back period and the kind of work into this partnership, we talked about this in the in the stagger sale episode, it's really important to see. And one of the things that I really enjoy doing is looking at this transaction and kind of playing around with this whole thing because orthodontics is so unique, it's so complicated, but there's a lot of moving parts. And I think if you can play with these moving parts just in the right way, you can massage maybe a good deal into a great deal. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you. <laughs> I, I actually came up with a good close. <laughs> Before we go, quick reminder, you may have received an email from us. And if you didn't check your spam, we are doing a quick survey of all of you. We've heard some great success on our letter campaign. And we want to hear the successes, the failures. Where are you in the process? So we sent around a quick email with a quick survey. It's about six, seven questions. We want to know your letter campaign story, and we're going to select the best and hopefully do kind of a recap on another episode in the future. So look, I'm going to send a reminder today. So look in your email, fill that out. We've got a little gift card prize. And if you're selected to be on the podcast and we look forward to reading your stories. Thanks. Awesome. Have a great day, team. See ya. See ya.